this morning we're gonna uh, be going to jump. We're gonna jump forward in our uh, study of Exodus. We're gonna start in uh, Exodus uh, 17, chapter 17. Uh, but before we do that, let's look back to do a quick review from uh, of last week's message. Um, so last week we finished uh, chapter 16 uh, by taking a look at the miracle bread that God provided for His people in the wilderness. Uh, like I mentioned last week, uh, this bread, the manna, uh, was the extension of God's self-sufficiency that was rooted in His triune nature. Right? When God showed His glory to the people of Israel after they grumbled, asking God for food, the first thing He did was to show them His glory. Why was that? I said, because God's trying to show them I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I'm triune. I don't need anything. Therefore, I can give you everything. Pretty simple. Um, that, was, uh, that was the point. That's what I said, that if, if is, the Israelites were to persevere in the wilderness, in their uh, faith gain diet, remember? That was their big why. They need to have a big why. And the big why, the answer to their big why was God. Why am I going to keep doing this? Why do, I, why do I keep believing in you? Why am I going to do that? Why do, I have, why do I keep believing in God? And Therefore, strengthen my faith because God's saying I'm, I'm self-sufficient. Uh, I'm always going to be. I don't need anything. I don't depend on anybody. Um, I'm doing this all out of pure love. Uh, and that's what sets apart the God of the Bible from all the other gods. Uh, again, because he's not dependent on anything. He doesn't... Um, um, his existence doesn't depend on anything. <laughs> he just exists. At the beginning of Exodus, when um, Moses asked him, who, who are you? What should I say who you are to the Israelites? I am. That's it. Because he just exists apart from anything else. Um, and he is completely happy within the Trinity. So he doesn't need that either. He doesn't need fellowship he doesn't need he has it all in the trinity um, and because he has no needs his act of creation again is purely out of love uh, and because he loves or better yet because he is love he showers a tremendous amount of mercy and grace to his chosen but grumbling people Israelites. tremendous as we're going to see um, tremendous amount of grace that he's showing them um, so, um, God's initial response after the Israelites grumbled was to show them his glory uh, and then to give them or to make that glory real in their lives. He gave them manna, bread, perfect meal, perfect food as an extension of his self-sufficiency. So through manna, God not only showed the Israelites that he's more than enough, he also taught them two things. What were those two things? First, he could be trusted even if they didn't know what he was doing. What does manna mean again? What is it? What, what is this? So that he could be trusted even though they didn't know what he was doing. And second, he could be trusted to be faithful to provide what they need when they need it and provide it abundantly. God said, only take this much. Don't worry, next day there will be more. Saturdays, take two portions. Don't worry, that bread is not going to rot. You'll have food for Sunday. 
trust me and I will provide. And he provided it abundantly. So God, once again, proved himself to the Israelites again. Uh, he bolstered his reputation as a faithful father to his people again. Right? You'd think they would learn. Some of us, same thing. <laughs> you would think we would learn that this is it. This is going to be forever. He, the God doesn't change. He's always going to be. But they didn't. Let's jump into our um, chapter 7. Let's jump to our text, verse 1. All of the congregation of Israel, the people of Israel, moved on from the wilderness of... That's the, that word there, okay? It's not um, pronounced sin. It should be seen. And it should be a Z instead of an S. That's the original. It's the wilderness of Zin. Okay? I know it says sin. Because some people, oh no, they're in the sin. That's why they're grumbling. They're in the wilderness of sin, sin all around them. No, that's that's an actual place. Um, so they moved on from the wilderness of Zin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water, people to drink. So first thing I want you to know this: this journey of the Israelites is done in stages. Okay, so they camped, uh, they uproot. Move again, uproot, move again. All according to the commandment of the Lord. So whenever the Lord says, okay, stop here, camp here. Okay, let's go, let's move there. All according to the commandment of the Lord, the Israelites move or, or, or continue their journey. So um, keep that in mind because that's going to play a big role later on in the story. So now during this part of the journey, the Israelites encountered a similar situation. Lack of water. Now remember, end of chapter 15, the Israelites had the same problem. Where? In Marah, right? After three days after crossing the Red Sea, Lord, we have no water. What did God do first? Turned the bitter water to sweet and then gave them all kinds of water at Elam. Right? This is significant, again, because remember God's ultimate purpose? Why is he taking them this long route? What was God's ultimate purpose in taking them this long route? Strengthen the faith of the Israelites. Right? How? By proving himself faithful to them to provide for all their needs. And has he done so, so far? Did he miss anything that they asked for? Hmm. No, right? He's proven every step of the way. He's proven himself to them. So in you reading it, you're thinking, okay, their faith must be growing. Yes. Right? But so far, every test that God gave them failed. It's a saying in the Philippines, right? Bo pol saro for. You know that saying? When I was a kid, there was a saying that you know, if you're in the back row of class, you're stupid. You're bopol. Bopol saro for the back row. I'm not saying the back row people, you're not. <laughs> Just a saying. <laughs> Especially though back there. Back there, I'm not saying that you're, <laughs> you're bopol. <laughs> but every time God gave these people a test, 
they keep failing, right? So my hope, as a reader, my hope is like, oh, man, this, this next time, same problem, right? No water. So you're like, okay, they know what to do now, right? They know. They know to trust God to give them water because the last time this happened, God gave them water, right? But they failed. They failed again. They didn't learn from their mistakes. Um, so once again, God leads them further and further into the wilderness, further and further away from Elam, uh, to a place where there was no water. Uh, now, this place, uh, as we read in chapter 17, is called Rephidim. Rephidim, okay, in Hebrew, means a place of rest. So God actually brought them here so that they could rest. Rest as in physical rest? No. I believe he brought them here too so that they could learn how to rest in him. Trust him right, for all their needs because they obviously they still haven't learned. So rest, this is a place of rest. That's what's supposed to happen here. They're supposed to be building up their confidence in God. There's no water again, but we know... Because it happened before that God will provide. Right? That's what's supposed to happen. But it didn't. They resorted back to their old ways of grumbling. Verse 2. You guys read this part. So in Mara, when um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when in Mara they had no water, what was the question that they asked? What shall we drink? And at the end of chapter 15, verse 24. This time, same same situation. People's grumbling again, but do they even ask now? Oh, their grumbling has leveled up. It's intensified, intensified, right? They don't even ask anymore. Mara, they give us water, Lord. Now, or sorry, where's our water, Lord? Now, give us water. Give us water. They're not even complaining anymore. They're demanding. Right? To the point of quarreling. Who are they quarreling? I feel bad for most. That's what I feel like every time I step up here. <laughs> Pastor Luis told me before I took up this uh, office, you know that if anything goes wrong at the church, it's always your fault, right? <laughs> I told them, yeah, I get it. That's the job of the pastor. Always my fault. Good or bad, your fault. Uh, <laughs> that's, what that's what's happening to Moses, right? Who are they quarreling? Moses. Um, now, that word quarreling, okay, in the original Hebrew, uh, that word is the word vayarev. Vayarev. Okay? which comes from the root word rib or rub, which literally means to contend, okay? to shout noisily, or to conduct a legal case or a lawsuit. Mm. They weren't just quarreling. They're suing God. It's a lawsuit. These people are suing God. And they're suing God through Moses. 
And they're even threatening to stone Moses as part of their revolt. Suing God. Uh, again, Moses said, you're not, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you test God? Because you're really, all this stuff is going on. You are quarreling with God. You're suing God. And again, verse 1. The verse I asked you to remember. What was verse 1? What did verse 1 say? It was God that led them here. Moses was just obeying what God says, but it was really God that led them here. Reichen, one of the commentaries, says that this rebellion is in a sense the Israelites putting God to the test or putting God on trial. Right? Now, again, my standpoint as a reader of this story, my initial reaction was, how could they do that? How do you put God on trial? Isn't he supposed to be the judge? But these people, no, no. We're the judge. Not you. They're putting God on trial. And what is there to try? What is there to test? God has been providing for them and has been faithful ever since they left Egypt. And even before that, remember? How did they end up in Egypt to begin with? Because there was a famine in their land. But in God's provision, he allowed Joseph to be sold and then gain prominence in Egypt so that when the famine came, they would be saved. He has been with them, providing for them all this time, and they still had the guts to put him on trial. So I, as I was reading this, I was questioning, like, what is wrong with these, what's wrong with these people? But then I realized, wait a sec, I struggle with that. Wait a sec, we all struggle with that. What is that? Grumbling? No. Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Next level grumbling. Let me put it this way. If grumbling comes from a sense of privilege to get something that we want, and then when we don't get it, we grumble. Being dissatisfied is to receive whatever that is that you are grumbling about and still have hostility towards the giver because the giver did not provide that something in the way that you want it provided. Something else. So it's not like they're lacking. It's not like God has you know, not given them what they needed. He has given them what they needed. But they're still not happy. They're still dissatisfied. Right? Lord, give me a job. Job comes two weeks into the job. Uh, Lord, give me another one. Some of you chase your wife for years. Lord, I, just give me this woman. Be my wife. Once you get married, after a year, treat her like garbage. Dissatisfied. These guys are dissatisfied. They receive. They know that God will provide. They're not questioning his faithfulness. They're not questioning his ability to provide. They're questioning something else. Right? What are they questioning? If they're not questioning his ability to provide, if they're not questioning his faithfulness to provide, what are they questioning? 
They're questioning that if God is good, will he provide again? God, they're questioning his goodness. Right? They know he could provide, but they don't know quite yet. They're not convinced that he will give them what they need. Get it? It's like if you're a parent and your kids know that you can afford a new pair of shoes, right? But you're kind of holding back giving them shoes because they have all too many shoes already. The kid's going to go, hmm, my mom is bad. My dad is bad. They won't give me shoes. Not, they're not questioning your ability to give. They know you could give. They have tons of shoes. They're questioning your goodness or your willingness to do it. That goes deeper, right? Right? These guys are dissatisfied in that they're questioning God's provisions or God's goodness to provide. On top of that, they hurl all kinds of accusations against God not being good to them. Look at 3 and 4 in Exodus 17. You guys read that. I like what Piper said about these people. Piper said that the Israelites were not questioning God's timing. They weren't questioning God's leadership. They weren't even questioning his providence. They are questioning God's goodness. They're not saying that God is not powerful enough to give them water. They know that. They've experienced it. They've seen his glory in the cloud. They know he's self-sufficient. They know he can, give, he can give them anything that they need, and he has given them everything that they need. What they're saying is that God is not going to help them because he is not good. Look at the text. How bad do these people think God is? They accuse him of murder. They're accusing him of, you brought us out here to kill us and our children. They're accusing him of murder. Meanwhile, they're the ones who are threatening to murder Moses. Is that ironic? They're accusing God who's been faithful to them of murder. Uh, meanwhile, they're the ones who's about to kill Moses by stoning. These people have put the goodness of God on trial all the while threatening to kill God's servant. Shouldn't God put them on trial? <laughs> He's the judge, right? I think that their thirst has made them delusional. They don't know what they're saying anymore. Moses warns them in verse 2, Why do you test the Lord? Haven't you seen what God has done? He has been good. All this time he has been Good, and you still have the audacity to question his goodness. So instead of God testing the faith of the Israelites at Rephidim, it was the Israelites who put God to the test. It was them who brought God to trial. Reichen commented that the Israelites court-martialed God. 
What's the charge? What's the charge of the court-martial? God, you're no good. You brought us to this place. There's no water again. You're no good. You're trying to kill us. What's the, what's the alleged crimes? Two, as far as the Israelites are concerned. First, capital offense of murder. You're trying to kill us. Second, what? Verse 7 in cha uh, chapter 17. What's the second offense that they're uh, putting on God? Verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is he with us or not? First offense that they're charging God. You're trying to kill us. Second, we're never here. You're not with us. The Israelites placed God on trial, not on his ability to provide for them, because they can't deny that. They tried God for his goodness. Is God good? Or more like, has God ever been good? Where is he now? Why did he lead us to this place, kill us and our children? I can just imagine courtroom scene, God understand. Israel is like judge questioning God. Where were you? Where are you? Have you ever been with us? Why did you lead us back here? After being interrogated by his own people, after his motives for saving are questioned, after his goodness was put on trial, how does God respond? How does God respond to these accusations? Verses 5 and 6, can you guys read? Okay, God responded in three ways. Okay? Three things that I want you to notice in that chunk of verses. They all start with the letter S, and this is how God vindicates himself to these people. And I can't believe that God even did this, because he has nothing to prove. Right? If I was God, I would just say, what? Okay, let me make that a reality. Let me just kill all of you right now. <laughs> he doesn't have to prove himself. He's already proven himself over and over again, right? But because he's God, because he's gracious, because he's loving, because, and because he's not going to kill these people, why? Sunday school teachers, why will he not kill these people? Even though they've been putting him on trial for his goodness, like blaspheming him, why would he not kill them? Because he promised Genesis 3 that the, the seed was going to come from these people. Now you realize how important what we took up is, right? <laughs> not going to kill them, right? He has to show mercy, patience, and forbearance. He has to. Otherwise, he's unfaithful to his promises. So that's why God res responds this way. Three ways. First S. First, God wanted to be seen. God wanted to be seen. Verse 5, pass on before the people, taking some of the elders of Israel with you. 
pass on before them so that they can see you. Or so that they can, they can see him. Right? Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you at, on the rock. He's right there. So that they can see him. This is like God telling them, You accuse me of not being there? You accuse me of not being with you? I'm right here. I was with you in the wilderness of Zin. I was with you at Mara and the Red Sea. I was with you in Egypt. I was with you even before that. I was never absent. I've always been with you. So that accusation, false. Is God with us? What, what do you mean? <laughs> I've always been here. And God gave them proof, right? What's the proof? Second S. So first, God wanted to be seen, not seen, <laughs> seen. <laughs> God wanted to be seen. That there, he, I'm right here. Second, God is the same, right? Verse five: Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. When did this happen? Back in Egypt, right? And what did that striking of the Nile? What did that do? Turn the water into Blood, and that was the first plague. Nine plagues come after that. After that, they're free. God said, at the start of your redemption, at the start of your freedom, I was there. That was me. Same staff, okay, used in Egypt to turn water into blood. Same servant, same power, same God. It's like God saying, you say I brought you out here to kill you? It's the same staff that freed you to begin with. Right? That put the plagues on the Egyptians so that you could be free. It's the same staff that split the waters. I'm not here to kill you. I'm the God of your salvation. And I will always be. When will you stop doubting me? It's the same guy, the same God. What are they talking about? What are the Israelites talking about? You're never here. You're out here. You just brought us out to kill us. No. Same. Class S, God saves. He's been saving them all this time, but apparently they're just too blind to see it. So he saves them again. Verse 6 again, you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. Palm Sunday, Jesus walked into, seen by everybody. For what reason? So that he could be struck a week later. So that blood and water will flow to save his way ahead but I hope you see that right? from the beginning God has always been the salvation of the Israelites from Abraham, Isaac Jacob God has been saving them from famine from tyranny, from slavery and the fact that they are even able to grumble and test God is a testament to God's faithfulness to save you realize that? The fact that they're even able to grumble against God is a testament to God's faithfulness and goodness to save. Why? It's hard to grumble when you're dead. 
How are you going to grumble if you're dead? The fact that you're grumbling is a testament that I saved you. And you still manage to grumble. You still manage to be dissatisfied. Right? And that's what, that's part of the story what is what's so shocking to me anyway. It's so shocking to me as a reader. But again, that shock will wear off eventually. Right? Why? Because you look at yourself and you're like, I'm part of the Israelites. Sometimes I act the exact same way. But the reality is that the Israelites are the ones on trial here. They're the ones who God is testing. And once again, they fail. They have proven themselves guilty of unbelief. And they fail again. So now, what's the lesson for us? Two things. Number one, don't be like the Israelites. There. Let's pray. <laughs> don't be like the Israelites. Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. Can you guys read that? Don't be like those. Well, don't be like that generation. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 7. You guys read. be like them. Learn from them. They drank from the same rock. They still didn't. We're drinking from the same rock now. Are we satisfied? <laughs> Do you still grumble? Don't be like the Israelites. Right? Main point of the narrative in the first part of Exodus 17 is how God, it's not how God miraculously made water to come out of the rock. That's not the main point. The story does not have a happy ending if you, can, if you read it, right? It doesn't have a happy ending. The, right, the writer did not say, and the Israelites rejoiced and drank miracle water. That's not what happened. The writer ends this story with a warning. This place shall be called Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. That's how it ends. There will be times that God will lead us to a place where there is no water. 
When he does this, he's not abandoning us. He didn't change his mind about us. His motives are still good. God wants our faith in him to keep on getting stronger. He wants us to realize that apart from him, there is only death. So the tests, so he tests us to see if we will trust him. Trust that he will always be good, even in the midst of the wilderness. So when I say God is good, yeah, see that that's exactly, exactly. God is good. So that wasn't how you were responding the first time. God is good. Uh, God is good all the time. I don't really believe it. I mean, uh, and it's not like God has been, you know, not answering your prayers. It's not like God's not been taking care of you. They all look healthy here. All dressed up, nice cars outside, filled. Some of you have four or five cars, two or three houses. <laughs> Not just here in the Philippines too, right? right? And then when you ask, God is good. Uh, eh. <laughs> Let's not be like the Israelites. He tests us in the wilderness to see if we continue to believe that he is still good. Even in the wilderness. I was telling my wife, I had a dream that this was all a dream. That I was back in the Philippines. And not the life that we had before, but how people, regular people in the Philippines live. I watch a lot of YouTube, I see them live. Houses are like, you know, with one bulb, no AC, no cars, little room. What would my faith be like if I was brought back there? Would it still be like now? Or would I be like the, these people? Because we neglect it sometimes. You know, all the blessings that we get, sometimes we just, we're supposed to get it. He's supposed to give it to us. No, he's not. He doesn't owe us anything. Right? Let's not be like the Israelites who place God on trial. We are not God. He is the judge. Amen? Amen. Second thing we could learn from this. Be aware of those who are still acting this way in the name of Christianity. Be aware of those who are still acting this way in the name of Christianity. Sadly, there's this growing movement in Christianity, has been for a while, that is doing the exact same thing that the Israelites did back then. They're doing the exact same thing today. Okay. They're called progressive Christians. Anybody progressive Christians here? If you are, you can progressively leave. I'm just kidding. You can stay, but stop being progressive. <laughs> progressive Christianity. It's a big movement now. Um, the uh, LGBTQ, a lot of them are progressive Christians. Uh, I went to their website, progressivechristianity.org. You can check it out. And I, che I checked out their five core values. Okay? I'm not going to read all the five. I'm going to read the last one because I think it summarizes the rest of their values. Five core values of progress. Number five core value of progressive Christianity says, 
Commit to a path of lifelong learning, believing there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Say that again. Commit to a path of lifelong learning, believing that is more value, there is more value in questioning rather than in absolutes. Now, I'm not sure how you understand that, but one of the more popular proponents of this movement defined that to mean that progressive Christians do not believe in the authority of the Bible. They don't think that God's word is authoritative and final. That the standard of morality, right or wrong, should be based should not be based on God's word, but on how human beings continue to define what is good and what is bad as our society becomes more and more enlightened through social justice and scientific research. That's what this person said. His name is Brendan Robertson, if you want to check him out. He's a queer pastor. His congregation is mostly LGBT, but they're evangelicals. Are they really if they don't believe on the authority of God's word? If morality could progress, right? The way we see it fit to progress. Are, could, could they be considered Christians? And again, I think the reason behind this kind of thinking is that progressive Christians doubt and question the goodness of God in parts of Scripture, right? Is God good if he's condemning homosexuals? That's not a good God because homosexuals are just, they're just loving regular people. They just want to be in the same relationship as everybody else. Why would you condemn that, God? No good. Your word, not authoritative. What about the parts of the Bible that talks about slavery and killings? No good. These progressive Christians are saying, no, we don't believe those parts. That's why we don't believe in the authority of Scripture. And so what they're doing is they're placing it upon themselves to be the judge of what is moral and what is immoral to be the judge on how God acted in Scripture and how he's acting now. They're still continuing to question the goodness of God. They're, st they're still putting the goodness of God on trial. Is God really good if he does this? Is God really good? Yeah, I don't I don't think that uh, these people understand what good means. What happened this week um, at the shooting, at, uh, not this week, but a week, week ago, shooting in Nashville. Right? Christian school was shot up by, uh, you know, professing transgender person. Is God good? Is he still good then? Because they don't want to blame the transgendered person. It's not her. It's not her fault. 
It's the Christians. They're the ones who made her angry. So. Is God still good? And again, God's response to that is this. Cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is where God rests his case. On the cross of Christ, God not only proved his goodness and righteousness as a judge in punishing the sin of mankind. I rest my case. I'm good. I punish sin. I have to. Because that's the right thing to do. I'm sure if you would ask any of these progressive Christians if they agree with that, they'll probably say, no, well, I agree to a certain extent as long as he doesn't punish the homosexuals. <laughs> but if a person came to my house and tried to kill my family, sure, punish that dude. Picking and choosing. But here it says, in the cross of Christ, it says that God punished all sin. He proved his goodness there. He proved his righteousness as a judge. And on the cross of Christ, he also proved his goodness in the mercy and the grace that he gave as a father by counting the sacrifice of Christ as propitiation, as satisfying atonement for his justice. He could have killed us all because that's what he's looking for, a satisfaction of his justice. If we're all sinners, should have been us. But he's good. So he sent his son, the greatest revelation of himself, so that he could die for the sake of God's children. To atone for, to propitiate, to satisfy the justice of God. And that's the goodness that we preach when we preach the gospel. That's the goodness that brings everlasting joy in the presence of God. We can't look at the world today and think, yeah, the world is like this today because God is bad. No. And we can't base our moral judgments on what we think is right. If that's the case, we're all going to be judges. Right? There are some things that I think that's right that you don't think is right. Right? If everybody was like that, there's no standard of morality, it would be chaos. Right? At the same time, if you agree to that, don't question when the standard of morality it doesn't agree with your standard of morality. It's sad to see, right? And that's just an example, but really in little ways, we're doing the same thing. Questioning God's goodness when it comes to his provisions, questioning whether or not, is he good because he allowed me to go through fill in the blank. Is he still good? Always. Right? He showed us that he's good. For all to see. Remember? Seen on the cross. Showed it to us. And he showed us that he's the same. Never changed. The promise that he promised back in Genesis 3. Still up to the day. It's true. All the prophecies 
fulfilled. Still some that haven't been fulfilled, but it will be based on his record. And he still saves. Even these progressive Christians. Can God still save them? Yes. If you're interested in, there was a debate between Brendan Robertson. It sucks that his name is Robertson. My middle name is Robertson. Yeah, not brothers or anything like that. There's a, there was a debate between him and a couple of apologists. They're just t telling him, like, you know, stop quoting moral biblical principles if you say that you don't believe the whole Bible because your arguments are doesn't make sense if you don't believe this right? anyway question that I'll leave you for today is this when God brings you to the desert when God brings you in the wilderness where there is no water will you trust that God is still good will you trust in God's goodness or Will you put God on trial? Think about that for a couple of weeks. We'll be back in Exodus in May. Amen. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. Give you peace, the Lord, and His face to shine upon.